Good evening and welcome, everybody. Um, or should I say Merry Christmas, as this is uh, greetings of the seasons. Uh, we are an all, all-inclusive podcast. Um, but yeah, given this is going to be going out very, very close to, to Christmas, um, yeah, hope you're all having lovely holidays and breaks so far. Um, I recently realized that the UK and Northern Hemisphere in general, they don't take much of a holiday at this time of year, so they're grafting through. So hopefully this is able to fill your ears on your commute to work um, one of these days, while the Southern Hemisphere are spring... Um, margaritas on beaches. But to join me in this festive special, um, we've got the full house involved. We've got Phil. Hi, Zed. Yeah, I'm good, thanks. I'm still working all the way through to Friday, so I've got two more two more days to just get out of the way, and then I'll be looking forward to a nice Christmas break. Are you working or are you, you working, though? Uh, well, today and tomorrow I'm working from home, so that Almost doesn't count, but I have one proper day on Friday, which I need to get things done and finished off. Okay. Well, well, good luck with the rest of it. Um, we also are joined by Andrew. Andrew, do birds take a holiday at, the time, at the time, this time of year? No, the opposite. They're at their most active. So uh, I've been spending a lot of time outside watching them, not creepily, just as normal people do. Uh, but yeah, you mentioned margaritas and cool drinks in the summer. Uh, how cool is it that we've got some rugby to watch alongside the Test cricket at this time of year? Uh, yeah, weird for, for the Southern Hemisphere to have rugby this time of year, but quite cool to have it around Christmas. I don't know. What do you guys think? Yeah, I'm looking forward to, you know, I think it's Boxing Day and Christmas, maybe not Boxing Day, Christmas Eve and New Year's Day matches. Um yeah, other than the heat, I'm a little bit worried about players overheating, but we, you know, we already have all of these water breaks anyway, so I'm sure we'll be fine. But definitely looking forward to hopefully the Lions pulling out some upsets over Sharks and Stormers over the next couple of weeks. <laughs> well, yeah, adds a new element to your you know, kind of Christmas Eve sit around uh, with the family. At least you've got now an extra distraction you can throw in the mix. <laughs> I did manage to go in the. Watched the Stormers against London Irish uh, last weekend, which was quite nice. Being down in Cape Town, you got to go catch the rugby. Um, I actually I ended up. What was the stadium? Sorry. How was the vibe? What was the stadium? Um, <clears throat> the lower levels of the stadium were fairly full, especially along the sides, um, and there was good vibe. Um, the, the Mexican wave was a bit difficult with like broken sections of the stadium where there was no one there, but. Um, yeah, I got offered some free tickets uh, on the day. Um, a friend of mine said her uncle's got tickets and can we come? And ended up being Gert Small, um, who I ended up going to rugby with and then drinks after and turned into a bit of a, a festive uh, vibe. Very, very intense dude, I must say. <laughs> I oh, really? Did you, did you, did you sharing scrum tips? Yeah, yeah. Um, I stayed away from from that, um, but he did uh, tell me some interesting things about the state of West Province Rugby Union um, and had some, some cool insights about the way London Irish play because Declan Kidney and uh, I forget the other guy's name of the coaches there, and he, he coached Ireland along with them, so he knows their styles well. And yeah, it's quite interesting. Sounds good. That's did you very ask him cool. Because he was close with Jake White, right? He was one of Jake White's assistants, so I'm sure. He's one of very few people who probably enjoy him. Maybe not. <laughs> uh, Jake, Jake did not come up, 
unfortunately. You stay steering away from the tough topics. Yeah, I was a little bit uh, starstruck, so tried mm. to keep things amicable. And festive, yeah, keep it keep it light. So he did he did give me free rugby tickets, so I don't want to rile him up. Yeah, no, that's fair. Um, cool. Well, as we promised a couple of weeks ago, we said we were going to do a year in review. Um, this is the episode to do that. So we've divvied up the top to kind of top nations in the world. Um, and we're going to do a bit of a report card on each of their, their seasons so far um, and then kind of summarize with a little bit of a view to, to where we kind of see them going or what they need to focus on for the next year. Um, we do will have a lot to cover and I'm sure there will be plenty of interruptions to go along. So let's jump straight into it. Um, we, I put these roughly in order of world rankings from what I can remember off the top of my head. So we'll just start at the top and that is Ireland. So I've given Ireland a B plus for the season. Um, obviously that is a, a Fairly good year, and um, I think if, without actually looking at the loss, I think they only had the two losses um, to France and the Six Nations and New Zealand in the first uh, match of the tour. Um, and obviously, you know, they won the Test Series in New Zealand. The thing, the reason why I haven't given them an A is because obviously they didn't win the Six Nations, um, which counts against them. And also those last two matches of the year against South Africa and Australia really were quite shaky. And even the game against Fiji, um, you know, they weren't looking nearly as, as potent as they should have been. So I think there's those kind of took some of the shine off which was otherwise a very, very good year. Um, you know, I think it's, it's in the Northern Hemisphere, it's definitely a two-horse race between France and Ireland as the, the front runners. Um, so yeah, I think the, the big pluses for them from the year are obviously being one of the, I think they're only the fourth team ever to win a test series in New Zealand. I mean, that's a massive, massive result. They've never won in New Zealand before, so to go over there and get win two games is a huge, huge result. Um, obviously, you know, had a pretty successful Six Nations. Um, and I think the one thing that they'll be very happy with coming out of this year is they know exactly who their first choice 23 are. There's kind of no positions where there's a question mark. They know the pecking order. So they're very, a very settled team. They know how they want to play going into the World Cup year. Um, I think the, the negatives that go against that would be quite a poor autumn campaign. Um, all three of their games, as I've mentioned, against Africa, Australia, and, and Fiji weren't particularly good. And I think their biggest worry is that without Sexton, they are a completely different team. Um, so there's a huge amount of pressure on Sexton as a 38-year-old to stay fit for their World Cup chances. If he goes down and you know he doesn't have the best record of injury, Suddenly, they look like a much more beatable team. Um, so, you know, as as you saw against Australia. Um, so, that's kind of going to be their big focus for next year. I think is finding a, a proper replacement for Sexton. I don't know if they've got enough Test matches to do that. Um, and I think the things that they'd look to try and achieve in the in the build up is beating France in the Six Nations. And a wider point of that would be just show that they can compete against big physical packs. I mean, we saw with Leinster how they got bullied by La Rochelle. You saw how they got bullied by France. Even the South Africa um, in the forward packs um, kind of were in control of that game. Um, so I think that, that those will be the things that they really want to try and prove that they can do is, is, is basically handle handle the big boys up front um, to improve their World Cup chances. What was your guys' view on Ireland for the earth? Is, is Sexton really 38? <laughs> At least, yeah. yeah. Jeez, like, yeah, that's that's a lot of pressure on an old man in rugby terms. Um, and as you say, I think that the as you, 
you, you've rightly pointed out that their game plan sort of revolves around six. And if, if the like of Joey Carberry comes in, he's a different player and you've got to adapt, you know, the whole game plan to that. That's a massive threat. That, that's a huge, huge threat into the next World Cup. But but Ireland are looking strong. You know, other than that, as you say, that 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 consistency and selection and that depth and experience they're building now makes them a very scary prospect. Yeah, I think Carberry played a couple of Six Nations games and he did okay. But uh, you can sort of see, I think, when uh, Sexton got that concussion against New Zealand, how desperate they were for him to play in the next game. Like, there's just not that level of trust to put him in a big game. And they've got a couple of really good up-and-coming youngsters, I think, um, like Crowley and Frawley. Uh, but they, yeah, they're too far off for a World Cup, like this close to a World Cup, like Ed said, like with only a few games, with nine games. I'm pretty sure Carberry's second choice. And he doesn't inspire that much confidence. So I agree, that's definitely their biggest weakness. But, um, yeah, strong here, though. I think it is an, it's an interesting way that Ireland approach games versus most of the other teams. I mean, most of the other teams in the cycle, you know, they kind of really looking to blood a lot of the wider squad guys. Um, you know, I mean, South Africa are the, probably the, the biggest case in point of that where they do a lot of rotation. They're really handing a lot of caps to the second, third, fourth choice players. Ireland and, and South Africa are happy to lose result games as a result of that. Whereas Ireland, they kind of really go out to win every single game, putting their best possible 15 on the field pretty much week to week which is great for consistency as you said but it kind of it does mean that your your second choice players get a lot less minutes and, and struggle to maybe fit into that setup when they are called on it yeah, maybe another positive for them was the rise and rise of um dan sheehan um at hooker i mean he, he stepped into some big boots and he looks like one for the now and one for the future like what a, what a find for ireland yeah, no, for sure. Um, now I think a couple of their forwards put up their hands as really world class this last year. I mean, Josh Hunterfield obviously getting World Player of the Year. Ty Byrne um, and Caelan Doris really stamping their marks as kind of top tier players in their positions, which I think you know a year or two ago probably weren't even in the conversation. Um, and now I think you know they're quite comfortably in that in that bracket. But yeah, I think if we don't have anything else on on, on Ireland, we can move on to, to the next team, which is uh, France. And I think, Phil, that's you. Cool. Um, yeah, as you alluded to, France did manage to beat Ireland in the Six Nations, and they were Six Nations champions. In fact, they took the Grand Slam for winning all five of their games. Um, and with the rest of the year, they also were unbeaten. So I'm going to give them an A, just short of an A+, plus, um, as I'll explain when I get to negative. But I think the biggest plus for them is consistency. They've just been building nicely for the World Cup throughout the year. Um, they have so much depth. Like They have had quite a few injuries, um, especially after the Six Nations and having to play quite a few players who aren't first choice. Um, and even when play some of their top players haven't quite been in, the, in their top form, they've still managed to just keep pushing along. And um, their wins in the end of year series were also you know, they, they didn't have like an easy fixture list and they managed to pull out the wins. But um, yeah, moving on to my negatives, which it's hard to find when they have an unbeaten season and they win all their games. But they had some very, very close games, which probably shouldn't have been as close as they were. And the two that I picked out were uh, the game against Wales in the Six Nations and against Australia in the, at, the, at the end of the year. So both of those games, they 
I think they would have expected to win a lot more easily than they did. And it was, uh, you know, just a handful of points between them. So at this level, you know, that either of those matches could have gone the other way. Um, so I think it, based on those results, they still do have some work to do before being confidently favorites. I mean, maybe they'll still be favorites, but com as confident about becoming champions next year at home in the World Cup. Um, and the only other thing, I guess, their, their media um, tests were against Japan. So they didn't have as much as a, t as a test as England and Ireland did, and even Wales, obviously, here in South Africa. So they had two tests against Japan. Um, again, they were able to build a bit more depth, but they weren't tested quite as much as they could have been. So I think for next year, going into the World Cup, the key focus is really just keeping things quite the same, but also getting their top players into the, you know, top form. Uh, I don't think we've quite seen the best of, you know, DuPont and Intermark this year compared to previous years where, when they really blew up. Um, they've been good, but they haven't been quite at their best. So I think to be, to win a World Cup, you want your top players right on the top of their form. So I think that's probably just the main focus and to keep things going as they have been. Yeah, I think that that's a fair point. I think a lot of the French players are maybe not quite firing on the, the levels that they've beaten a year ago. Um, so yeah, one wonders if they're going to bounce back from that or, or kind of go into their shelf a little bit. But I think I think something that I find interesting about France, and it's probably similar to Ireland, is that you know neither of us have obviously given them perfect years, but how much are, are there obvious signs or room for growth and improvements between now and the World Cup? Are there things that you can point at and be like? that's something they can show up and be better at? Or is it just kind of, are they at their peak already? Yeah, and that's an interesting question. I mean, Ireland, especially in previous years, we've known them, or at least in the previous cycle, to sort of peak in 2017 or so. So maybe they've done it again, and maybe that's part of the problem, like you said, where they push their like starting their uh, strongest lineup in every game. Maybe that's part of the problem. Um, and France, like I said, they have exposed a bit more of their, um, you know, non-starting players. I think compared to Ireland, but still, um, yeah, they could have they could have peaked already. They haven't they haven't quite been building. I think like upwards they, um, throughout the year. They had a really good Six Nations, and some of the games, like I said, against Australia, that was far closer than it really should have been. It's just scary to me that how young some of their frontline stars are still. The likes of Peno and Dupont and Intermac, like these are guys who are gonna play probably one another, if not two more World Cups. Like it's it's pretty incredible. And and the fact that they the fact that we're criticizing them for not being at their best and they're still getting an A grade for the season, um, to me that's scary. Like Ireland and France have been out and away the best two teams I reckon this year. Um, Ireland, we probably think they've played pretty much to potential. Um, France, I think they can kick another gear. So I think they'll they'll definitely enter the World Cup as favourites for me. Do you reckon Ireland are favourites in our pool against Africa? I think it's pretty even horse race. Um, yeah, are you guys? so hard like based on world cup pedigree 
rather than short-term form. Like on form, yeah, Ireland are favourites, of course. But yeah. factoring in everything, it's so it will be interesting to see like bookies, you know, whether they just do it on short-term form, short-term form. So I don't know. I I I would say it's very very even. Sitting on the fence. Yeah, no, it's it's going to be a very interesting um, World Cup, I think. But yeah, speaking of, of some of the top favorites of the World Cup, the next team on our list is, is New Zealand. So, Andrew, can you take us through them? Well, at the moment, they're not favorites for the World Cup by any means, but we'll get into that. Um, <clears throat> I've given them a C, which I felt like is, you know, New Zealand, we always judge them by higher standards just because they are New Zealand and they've been the, the benchmark for rugby since, you know, professional rugby began, essentially. Um, but then again, I, I think a C is not that harsh. Um, they they had a actually not a bad record on paper this year. They they won eight, lost four, and drew one. Um, the la- the draw being their last game against England. Um, but I think we probably can all agree they've they've really had a poor season by New Zealand standards. Um, this has been one of their worst seasons in terms of results in in some years now. Um, in terms of the pluses, we'll start with the positives. Um, they did manage to win the rugby championship somehow, um, so they, they 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 topped that group um, after having a rather poor start and and some some up and down results. Um, they also had an unbeaten end of year tour, which is is something to sort of to uh, give them credit for, I guess. And and they did manage to pull through in some close games. Um, the, they also have a few players who showed some really good consistent form, um, others who didn't, but the likes of you know, Adi Savia had a monster year. Um, Jordi Barrett was really good as well all the way through. Uh, but but plenty of, lo- of um, negatives for New Zealand this year. I think the New Zealand fans won't be happy with the team's performance. And of course, there was uh, a call for the coach's head, um, but he did get a vote of confidence in the end. So... I've, I've put it down as a negative that um, they still have the same coach because <laughs> I feel like some some new blood um, with some time before the World Cup would have probably done them good. Um, they are stuck with Steve Hansen until until we until we um, compete in. Steve Hansen. Sorry, sorry. I, Steve Hansen too. Uh, sorry, they're basically the same person. They are basically the same person. Um, but yeah, Fuzzy is he's there. Like it or not, um, and and they they're gonna have to adapt. Um, they they did lose to to Argentina at home for the first time, which was a massive coup for Argentina and a real embarrassment for New Zealand. But probably the, their low point of the year was in uh, the mid-year uh, series loss to Ireland at home for the first time ever, and that has to go. A big credit to Ireland, but New Zealand were all over the place in that series. After the first test, winning it, they were just nowhere. Um, so that was real alarm bells for New Zealand, and they've they've in, they've ended the year. What is the third or fourth on the rankings? Um, really, by their standards, it's uh, it's really really bad. Um, so a C, as I say, probably in the middle. It's not the worst score, but by New Zealand standards, they should be doing a whole lot better. And the key focuses before the World Cup for me um, are getting some consistency going. They were massively up and down this year. They lost to Argentina and then beat them by 50 to 3 or something. 
Um, they did the same with the Springboks. Um, the they've they've just been so inconsistent, and and they need to find some some sort of yeah some flow in their results. Uh, and then their selections as well. They were um, rotating a lot through the year. I mean, New Zealand has so much talent that they sort of are forced into a rotational policy more than other teams. But the likes of their centres, their um, back rows, there was just such inconsistency in selections. And I think they'll be looking to really nail down who are their main starters and, and um, players in those positions to try and get some some chemistry going uh, for the Rugby 07 fans out there. Um, yeah, so that's that's New Zealand's recap. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting one. I think if you, yeah, as you said, if you were to put this Ask the Fan question in June or July, you get a very different answer to now. Um, I think that they definitely did improve once they got Joe Schmidt and um, Jason Ryan in the mix. But yeah, there does seem to still be some question marks and they do some still seem to be switching off at key times, such as, you know, that those last 10 minutes against England. I mean, to ship whatever it was, three tries in 10 minutes is not good. Well, sorry, it's not good enough for, for a team like New Zealand. No, and I mean, sorry, just to interrupt you. I mean, they had eight wins, but three of, three of those were very narrow, unconvincing wins against the likes of Japan and Scotland, who in any given year, New Zealand should be winning with with comfort. And, and that's with, usually when they play those teams, they play sort of their, their B team or their youngsters, and they try and blood some new players. They weren't necessarily doing that this year because they were so desperate for wins. And the fact that they still had to grind out you know, tough wins against those kinds of teams, not a great sign. Yeah, I think um, I was going to say they've been improving quite a bit, like like Ant said, since they got new coaches in, um, especially their forwards sort of going back to basics. But, um, I mean, bringing up some of those results, that performance against England at the end and even how close the Scotland game was, there's still, this is probably the worst All Blacks year in some time that we've seen, despite those improvements. So I think that there's a long way for them to go to build anywhere near like they will be comfortable going into the World Cup. Did you think they'll be able to make those, enough of those changes in time? I mean, yeah, sorry. Um, I I feel like I, I struggle to write New Zealand off ever. They've just got so much yeah. like talent, like natural talent, that even sometimes with bad coaching, that can still come through. Sometimes Audie can just take the ball and run. <laughs> and no amount of um, Ian Foster <laughs> coaching can stop him. That's the thing. I mean, a New Zealand team on paper is never, ever a team you can write off, unfortunately. Like they, they just have such incredible talent across all the positions and all their, all their provincial or franchise teams that you, you can throw <clears throat> any random mix of people from, from the Crusaders, Blues, and, and the rest together, and they'll just they'll be a competitive team and, and be a danger. Um, so I'm I'm happy that they don't have a new coach because it's probably more of the same, and let's let's hope that that's you know it's it's the the June July All Blacks that pitch up at the World Cup next year, otherwise they will be a force again. Yeah, I mean I think that's my view of it. I think as you say, you can't write the All Blacks off. I think they very likely can. I mean, you don't want to say upset teams. Um, but, you know, they definitely could knock off one or two teams. But I don't know if I can see them winning three playoff games in a row. 
Yeah, that's fair. But uh, I mean, I, I I have no doubt that they'll qualify from the group, and then it's Ireland and South Africa probably, maybe Scotland in the quarterfinal, and anything can happen. I mean, it's going to be super exciting no matter what the permutations are. So just can't wait. Yeah, and I think it's it's going to be. I mean, as we've all, all been saying for the whole year, it's going to be a very exciting World Cup. So yeah, that that definitely a way to lean into it. Um, which which leads us into our next team quite nicely, which is South Africa. Um, obviously also had a bit of a, a mixed year, so I've given them a B minus. Um, that might feel a little bit uh, optimistic. I've lost Ant. Have you lost Ant, Phil? I've lost Ant. He's recording, so I don't know what's going to happen. Ant, you there? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I can hear. Yes, he's cool. back. We lost Where's you for you a second. Uh, just as you were getting uh, into please. Springboks, yeah. B minus. Okay. Well, sorry. B minus. Um, yeah. So, so that's that might feel slightly optimistic given their win-loss record, but I think there, there's reasons and explanations for that. Um, as we mentioned, I think the Springbok coach is really focused on building depth this year. Um, I think they're trying to make make up for the, the COVID year where, we, where probably they would have done depth originally. Um, and I think that's one of the really big pluses for them is that we've answered a lot of question marks around a lot of players. We now know, you know, kind of got a lot more depth at 8, 9, 10, wing, fullback. Um, you know, the only real question mark that we still probably have left is maybe inside centre or 13. Um, but even then, we've got, you know, solid, if not, you know, unspectacular um, backups in Estes and, and uh, Creel. So I think I think that's been a really, really good thing for the years. We've really got nice, solid depth across the team now. And so the, the coaches need to get applauded for that. Um, I think there's been... There is some, still some quite nice room for growth. There's some like quite key areas that the Springboks can improve on to take the game to the next level before next year. And I think we've seen light shoots of that, particularly in their wide and attacking game from this interview tour. Um, and I think the other really nice thing is that, yes, their win-loss record wasn't amazing, but there was only one game where they were actually outplayed, which was that first loss against Australia. Um, every other game, they were in it, if not leading, with a couple of minutes to play. Um, so maybe that could be counted as a loss if you know we were letting some some big games slip, but you know, they, we really didn't get kind of pushed around the park. Whereas you know New Zealand, some of their losses were quite bad, um, and yeah, obviously France didn't lose, uh, and Ireland didn't get get pushed around too hard either. Actually, no, they they got pumped by New Zealand in the first test. So um, <laughs> yeah, that is that is a, a a positive for us. The negatives, I think, is you know we lost some games with some selection gambles. You know the, the persistence with Duella. France was staying, not playing as well as he could have, maybe at 10, Dwayne Hamilton being rushed back. Um, those were risky selections by the coaches that didn't come pay off and ultimately cost us the rugby championship, essentially. Um, and I think the losses to France and Ireland, while not train wrecks, because, you know, we were very much in those games and I think we can pinpoint, you know, the small margin that it would have gone the other way. There's probably, and it would have been nice to have got those confidence boosters um, at the end of the tour. For next year, I think the, the key thing is to just kind of keep growing on this, the areas that the, the coaches have been focusing on. Um, and most importantly, just start to build a winning habit. We need to start closing out those close games before the World Cup. Um, and yeah, one nice, last nice thing to, to, to fix is to just figure out what to do with Elton, uh, whether he's part of the plans or not. 
That's a tough one. Or is it a tough one? Maybe it's not. Andrew, it's not a tough one for you. No, dump him. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we have, like Ant was saying, in terms of building depth, like without Elton, mm-hmm. assuming Pollard's fit and having Willemse as the backup and then whoever else is third choice, it's not the worst thing in the world. Um, if if Lebox on, on tour, it's, it's relatively comfortable. It's a lot better place than it was, you know, six months ago. Yeah. Do, do we need to put a muzzle on Rassi Erasmus for the next year? It's an interesting well, no, one. Not on the ref, refereeing panel, so you know. Uh, <laughs> he's, he's just shit, shitting on himself if he if he complains about anything. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that was that. I think that that move to bring Rassi in was um, one of those of you know keep your friends close but your enemies closer <laughs> kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, he's he's got South Africa into some really bad books and some some trouble this past year. That's for sure. Yeah, but I think as as you say, I think it, it's a really it works really well because now he doesn't really have a, a lot like, leg to stand on if he's complaining. Um, yeah, because yeah. He, it's his job now effectively to to, to fix those problems. So. Uh, and and who uh, do we who do we um. Do we count as the find of the season? Do we do we say Damien Willemse, who came in at 15 for Villy and was just spectacular in, in mid-year and then filled in at 10, you know, when we needed him, when we were so desperate and there was no Andre Pollard, there was no Franz Stein, uh, or one of the wings, uh, KLA or, or Moody, who both have, have had cracking starts to their Springbok careers? I think for me, yeah, it has, yeah. Viso really stepped up. Yes, you know, he stepped up. Jen Hendricks really stepped up. Yeah, so there's, I mean, a lot of those guys really came. So I think it's, I mean, it's, I think it's, I would say, Michaela uh, has fine of the season, but I think it, you know, there's quite a wide net of players that they're in the conversation. Yeah, I mean, I think Orange has been so good that we're questioning the first choice 15. I think. Hendricks has been pretty good too, so maybe you would argue that he should get a spot ahead of Faf. I mean, Dwayne's getting on so much that uh, Visa's strong performances have sort of put him probably in a starting position, I would say now. Um, so all these players, yeah, like you said, have really stepped up and either pushing or are you know first choice now. But I'm so, it's still a tough one. And um, in our last podcast, we were saying what is going to happen if Pollard's fit. If Billy's playing at 15, presumably, or that's the question, but like, where does Willem fit in? Like, he's been playing so well. Is he a bench player with the with everyone available? I would think so. I mean, he covers that that Stein 10, 12, 15, 13 wing role so well. I mean, the, the Springboks have been leaning on the side of of playing Willem as utility back, but a starting back, and having Billy on the bench. I don't know if that's going to carry on. Yeah, Vili has shown really good impact this year off the bench. I was a bit skeptical at first, I must admit, of, of having him coming off the bench, but he really has injected energy. Um, so will Willem still bring the same impact that Vili has, or does Vili have more impact for 20 minutes than Willem does? I don't know. It's a bit of a balancing act between the two. Yeah, I mean, I think... I reckon they're probably starting Willem just to try and give him more experience in 15. I think 
I mean, especially with, as you say, the way Billy's played, he's shown that he is the clear first choice. But so I assume the plan would still be to go with Willems on the bench, especially because if you do then have to make substitutions, it's less um, less mixing, you know, because Billy realistically only covers fullback these days, um, maybe ten. Whereas if you have so if you bring him on, you have to do a lot of rearranging. Whereas if you have Willems on the bench, it's just a straight swap. Yeah, I think his days as a wing are long gone. He's a bit too old for that and a bit too slow, yeah. perhaps. Um, but yeah, I also I I think that without Vili on the field, it's just the, the back line has just looked too, I don't know, like just not creative enough or there's not enough happening. So, and it, it, he he didn't start and there wasn't a lot of complaint at the beginning of the season when Vilimsa started at fullback. So I think Billy's had a really positive year for himself, but also obviously for the team. For sure. Um, cool. And I think we can move on to the next team. Then that's England with Paul. Cool. So, yeah, what a weird season for England. I, I think, um, you know, obviously it culminated in sacking their coach. Uh, what is it, nine months out from a World Cup, so that looks awful. But I would say in terms of the actual season itself, it wasn't as bad as last year, um, and there were some positives, so I'm giving it a C-. Uh, could have been worse, could have been worse. So uh, last year they came fifth in the Six Nations, this year they came fourth, so uh, I'll get to that in the negatives, because even though they finished fourth, they still only won two games, two matches, and those were against Wales and Italy, so that's just about as bad as you can realistically get for an England team. Um, but the pluses first, so the, the major positive from this year, from an English perspective, is going to Australia and winning a series there. That's never easy for you know any Northern Hemisphere team, and managing to do it, especially uh, coming from behind and winning the series 2-1, was a, a really big positive. And I think, um, other than that, it's really blooding youngsters and getting uh, more experience on on some players who are going to be around for a long time and key players. So in particular, I think uh, Freddie Stewart has easily cemented his spot as fullback and I would say is one of the, definitely one of the best young players in the world, if not one of like the leading fullbacks in the world these days. Uh, he's just been that solid every single game. He's really good. Um, Marcus Smith is still young, just getting, even though he didn't have the best year on an individual level, I think getting... Minutes under his belt, he was the top scorer in the Six Nations. Um, still, obviously, working out that combination with Farrell. It's not quite there, uh, but just getting that international experience, I think, is key for him. And then even guys like Jack from Portfleet and a host of other youngsters. I mean, what's his name? Arundel may have got nominated for an award, but uh, he hardly played. So he doesn't really count as one of these players who got minutes. Um, but yeah, I think that is a positive to, to give ex international experience to these youngsters who are going to be around for a long time. So moving on to the negatives, yeah, like as I said, the Six Nations was just really, really poor. To only beat a really bad Wales team and Italy, so because they smashed Italy, they were able to um, beat Scotland on points difference overall. But to win two games out of five is really bad. Um, a year out from the World Cup, that's was the start of a bad year. It got better with the with the mid-year series against Argent, uh, against Australia, but then the end-of-year series was obviously the, the final straw for Eddie Jones. I think the loss to Argentina was really hard for 
England to take, seeing that it was the first time ever, um, and the performance was just so poor. And then the loss to the Springboks, I mean, obviously it's not a new thing. England have lost to the Springboks, even at, at Twickenham a fair few times. But that performance too, the actual performance itself was really disappointing. And for me, particularly the performance of some of the older players and some of the players who you would normally back to do more of a job. Um, we spoke about it on the podcast. Guys like Tuilangi and Vunipola, um, but also, yeah, I mean, some of the coaching too. We've spoken about how are they holding back? Are they building for the World Cup? And at some point, if you don't get that balance right, if you don't show enough, if your performance is that poor throughout the year, you're not going to make it as a coach. Like, it's not all about the cycle. You've still got to live a bit in the present. And ultimately, Eddie Jones got that wrong, whether you believe it's the wrong decision or not, to sack him so close to the World Cup. He he didn't get it right. He, um, Yeah, it, performance-wise, it was a really, really poor year for England. So looking forward, they've already appointed, I think it was this week, um, Steve Borthwick, even though it was spoken about for a while. It wasn't a big secret. So it's it's a massive time for England. They've got um, such little time. I mean, Rassi had more time to turn things around. Steve Borthwick has less. Um, and there's a lot to do. Like, we've spoken about how combinations are not settled. They're still trying to figure out the um, Marcus Smith Owen Farrell combination if that works best. I think Borthwick is known for really going back to the basics. So getting the set pieces right, doing the simple things right, whether they can do those and whether they can do those effectively enough. I mean, they're on the easy side of the draw for the World Cup, so it could be enough to even get to like a final and then on the day anything can happen. So um, yeah, I think just the key focus for the World Cup is just getting the little things right, getting selections right and getting you know set pieces and the basics right. And then from there, they, they do have some good individual players, so anything can happen. What do you guys think? Yeah, England are a good team. They've just had a really bad year. And I don't know if I agree with Eddie Jones sacking. Um, it's It has been a bad year. There's been some really bad results and poor performances. But Eddie's the kind of guy who plays 3D chess. He's four steps ahead of you. Um, at any given point, and he would have had plans being laid um, long, long in advance. Um, and apparently his sacking was handled handled really badly. I mean, he found out through someone in the media that he was sort of under the caution and maybe losing his job, and, and that, that should never be the case. Um, and they, they seem to have gone behind his back while he was still coach and approached Steve Borthwick, which is, again, you know, pretty poor practice from, from the... England Rugby Football Union. So I, I think from Springbok supporters' perspective, England are going to struggle to get things together in time. As you say, he had less time than Russia. And well, but, but that being said, the Springboks, I think, were more more in a crisis than, than England are. Um, so, again, another team you can never write off. And they have some great players and some great young players coming through the ranks. And they've just got to find that consistency and, and unlock those little combinations and um, they they could be dangerous on their day absolutely but not not a great year for them I agree with you there yeah I mean I think it's going to be very interesting to see what Borthwick can do and I think as as you said you will 
do a spring rock game plan, make a very forward and forward orientated, lots of kicking and kick chases. I think, you know, with Stewart and, and Farrell at 10, they've probably got the players that can handle that. I don't know if Tuolagi's going to fit in that setup long term. I think he's just lost probably his impact. But the issue, the, my biggest issue is, do they have the forward pack to replicate that kind of game plan? I mean, we've seen them get monstered by the Springboks repeatedly. I don't know if they have the, 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 the yeah, enough grit and mongrel in their forward pack to kind of dominate teams through their forwards consistently. But That's my worry been going back to six. But, but everyone gets mongled by the, the Springboks. <laughs> yeah. Well, we were saying, Andrew, I think you would put England at best, at best, like fourth or fifth best forward pack in the world now. So like, yeah. the and the their media, obviously, English media are ridiculous. They talk them, they still talk themselves up as like being the best. Whereas yeah. I think Ireland, France, South Africa have clearly showed, even and I would I say, would see, yeah. 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 So they're more on the likes of, you know, Wales, Australia, those sort of teams in terms of their forwards. And some some of their like better individual forwards, you know, like um, Ellis, Genge, they're more sort of flashy forwards rather than, you know, doing the hard oh. yards. I'm glad I'm glad you didn't count Itoje among their better forwards. I have such a, <laughs> I have such an extra grind about that guy. I don't know why people rate him so highly, but anyway, um, yeah, I think they they need to they need to get rid of the Vunipolas. Um, they've had their day. I don't think they're as effective as they used to be. Um, but but England have the player pool. I mean, they have the second most professional rugby players after South Africa, um, and they have some pretty grizzled hard men out there. It's just it's just about time at this point, and and Borthwick can't do anything except go back to the basics because there isn't time to inculcate anything else. No, I mean that's a good point. If you think about the players that South Africa used at the World Cup, you know you had guys like Colby and Um who made their de- Matumpi who all made their debut under Rossi. You know those guys were playing in the final with like ten caps, fifteen caps. There isn't 15 caps left for, for England to get in their players. So, you know, yes, you have this big player pool, but they really are left with whoever is already in the system. You know, it's, it's going to be a, a very big risk to bring in outside players at this point, I think. Um, so, yeah, it'll be interesting to see what they can do. Um, well, they've, they've, just got to, they've just got to put together their best South African pack from everyone that's playing overseas and <laughs> just put them in. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I think just the last That's, thing I want to say about England was just that uh, I think for most people, the Eddie Jones sacking on a just a performance level, seeing that so close to the World Cup didn't make sense. So obviously there was a lot of talk about how players weren't happy. And once you lose the players, it's sort of hard to come back. So whether it was because of his treatment or whether it was whatever it was, I don't think it will ever know exact, like the 100% truth. Like, yeah, that sort of... Um, Unhappiness in the camp was sort of the final nail in the coffin for him, I guess. Yeah. Um, speaking of unconvincing forward packs, Andrew, can you take us through Wales again? <laughs> the less the less said about Wales, the better, probably. Um, <clears throat> they had a pretty poor year. I gave them a D. Um, it might be might be even generous. I don't know. They, they won three and lost nine, which by any standards is very, very poor. Um, the only plus I could find for their season was that they had their first test win in South Africa, which was huge for Wales. Um, South Africa played 
a, a, a third string team against them with a whole lot of youngsters, a whole lot of youngsters with a lot of potential. But you know, we didn't we didn't expect them to shoot the lights out, and there was the inevitable uh, lack of cohesion and, and all that that goes with it. But you know, round of applause for Wales winning in South Africa. Um, their their negatives. Uh, picking out a few specifics, of which there were many um, losses to to Georgia and to Italy. Um, Italy are a team on the up, to be fair, but Georgia are are not. Um, and and Wales have had some some inconsistency in their leadership as well, um, both from a coaching level and from a captain point of view. So um, you know. Uh, the their captain for the for the autumn series was appointed very very late. Um, it was a bit of a controversial decision. He had a terrible hairstyle. Um, so the the key focal points for the World Cup for me um, are to develop some BMT. They had some narrow losses to to England and France. Surprisingly, um, they brought them down to their level. But some some BMT will help in clinching those victories. Uh, but but more importantly, it's probably betting in Gatland as the new coach or the the new old coach um, again. So some getting some Gatland ball going, um, and Gatland is is he's not got time like Steve Borthwick. He's on the same timeline, and and he's known for for putting a bit of a punt into uh, younger players. His his philosophy is sort of if you if you're good enough, you're old enough, and and it's probably going to be quite disruptive. Um, so I think we'll have a few bolters in that Wales World Cup squad, uh, and it's going to be difficult to get some cohesion under a, a new coaching group. So that's a real challenge for them. Yeah, it's. Well, uh, I mean, that coaching group. I mean, it's you know, it's Wales Gatlin back. Uh, so his old, it's most of the same players. <laughs> yeah, I, I I think Wayne Pivak to me is. Uh, he sort of represents like the worst type of New Zealand coach where they just want to like just run too much without doing this like the more basic things first and just having a good kicking game with more solid forwards. So trying to, you know, run before you, you do the basics is always gonna end badly. And he yeah, he also just didn't last like so close to World Cup. You have to be doing really badly to not make it through. So that loss to Australia, that last one, I think, where either team could have lost and that either team would have had the worst year probably. But um yeah, after that there was just no chance of survival. Do you think if they picked a captain with a less shit haircut, he wouldn't have tripped the um he'd farm and they would want them? I mean, anyone else probably wouldn't have tripped pizza who there. So yes, yes, was the answer. <laughs> well, that sounds like the ultimate nail on the top into a feedback. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think Gatlin's same as as Borthwick will tighten things up and take it back to basics, which helps them. But is that enough? I don't know. I don't really have much else to add about Wales, to be fair. Wales, Wales are never going to be World Cup contenders, at least with the with the team as it is now. So it's it's just about whether or not they can knock off a few bigger teams along the way. Yeah, I mean, the only thing going for them is they are on the easy side of the draw. So they really only need to win one tough game to make it to the semifinals, uh, which is their quarterfinal. And even then, it's not going to be, you know, it's one of Argentina or Australia or someone. It's not 
South Africa, Australia, uh, South Africa, New Zealand, Ireland, France. So it is it is lining up for them nicely, and they do have that on their side. But yeah, if, if we don't have anything more to add to that, which I mean, I don't, we can go to the next team, which is full with Australia. Yeah, so Australia, results-wise, as we were saying, if they had lost to Wales, it would have been an absolute nightmare of a season. But despite you know, Seoul having a really bad win percentage, I've given them a C, which is higher than my English score, which was a C-, minus, just because I think there is a slightly more positive sentiment around the Australian camp, and that's mostly due to some of the good performances throughout the year. So they were also up and down, like some of the other teams we've mentioned. But um, So their ups were, I think, pretty good, and their downs were obviously not so good. Um, but also maybe some mitigating factors. Um, we've spoken about how they use the most players throughout the year, and that was out of necessity a lot because they've had so many injuries. Not all out of necessity. They've also had some strange selections. Um, I think what's troubled us quite a bit has been fly-half selections and not backing some of the youngsters and bringing back old hands like Bernard Foley. Um, and, I mean, Craig Cooper played a match, I think, and other people have been involved. So, um, yeah, it's been a frustrating year, I think, for Australia yeah, and Australian fans. Let's not forget the Ben Donaldson shocker. And Ben Donaldson obviously looked like he was going to win a match for them and said lost a match for them. Those are the fine margins sometimes of um, international rugby. So, yeah, I think the pluses are, like I said, some impressive performances throughout the year. They they beat South Africa in Australia during the rugby championship. They narrowly lost to France when they were expected to you know, lose by a lot more in a really good performance. And because of the injuries, they were able to, you know, blood so many players, new players too. So a lot of their base has been exposed to international rugby, whether by necessity or by choice. Um, and that should bode well for the future. And I think focusing next year, a lot of it will probably just be on like strength and conditioning, understanding why they have so many injuries this year. Um, the selections, I think, first choice, I don't know if they know who their first choice 15 is. Um, I certainly don't. So I think that, yeah, they need to nail their selections. Obviously, injuries makes that a bit tougher, but they should still have a good idea. Um, and then, yeah, being able to just replicate their good performances throughout the year, get that consistency and understand, you know, how they can play well one week and and probably discipline too. They, some of their games, the discipline was really bad. Um, I think it was against Ireland where I was watching where it was so frustrating, not because I want to see Australia do well, but just because I wanted to see a, a decent rugby game. But like every third or fourth ruck, <laughs> they'd get called up for another random high shot or a random, yeah. So that discipline is really something that they need to fix going forward. Um, and like Wales and England and Argentina, they're all, they're on the easy side of the of the World Cup. So to to make a deep run, they really don't have to do that much. They just need to put, you know, uh, uh, two decent games together against whether it's Wales or Argentina or whoever, and they could end up in the final as well. So. Let's see what happens. Um, there's enough positive to, you know, obviously not sack your coach nine months out, but also to look forward with a bit of optimism.
they just need to stop selecting Darcy Swain and they'll sort out 70% of the discipline issues. <laughs> yeah, he. I mean, that against England was really frustrating. Um, but it was the neck rolls, right, uh, against Ireland where obviously Swain wasn't playing. So I don't know. And the commentators were talking about whether it's it's something as weird as maybe they're encouraged to do this in training and they're not called out on it or something just because it was so... Um, yeah, it just kept happening. So I'm sure there'll be some focus on it next year. So perhaps they will improve or perhaps it's too too far down the line. Yeah, I think similar to uh, Safi, I think there is a cause for optimism there. Like I think there's enough positivity in the like team that they probably can pull something off. Like there's enough good signs, but... Yeah, whether they can pull it all together still remains to be seen. Cool. So, who's next on the list? Next on the list is Andrew with his Kilted Warriors Scotland. All right. I'm bringing out the the whiskey for this one (laughs) just to make sure I'm representing. Where's your um, my Scottish bias comes out in this one, I think, maybe. I gave them a C plus, um, uh, which is you know, maybe maybe a little bit generous. Their record was five wins and seven losses, um, so not spectacular by any means. Uh, but Scotland are you know, one of the smaller nations, I guess, in terms of their player pool, and they do punch above their weight, I think, in that regard. Uh, they did have big wins over Argentina and, and England early in the year as well, um, which were, you know, big results for them. Um, and they've also started building some some really good consistency uh, in their results. They, they're they consistently pitching up for games. They're not that regularly getting pumped by 30, 40, 50 points, which the Scotland of old, you know, that was the, that was the norm. And, and they're building some real nice depth and experience. Um, their, their club teams are doing well, and that's feeding into the national team. And they've started to get a more consolidated first team. Uh, and there's still some some question marks over who's the best 10, um, who's the best 15, for instance. So still some selection question marks ahead of the, the World Cup that they'll have to, to work out over the next few months. But overall... Um, they are building some really good depth and experience across important positions, and uh, and putting some some really good teams into difficult positions, which for Scotland is, you know, quite a, a massive growth. Uh, they did have narrow losses to to Wales, Australia, and Argentina. They played Argentina three times this year, I think, which is more than usual. Um, but they four. they've done four times this year. Yeah, so. Um, a good test for them. I mean, this is an Argentina side on the rise, but um, they they probably need to work out a bit more of a winning mentality in the team, and that only comes with results. So uh, they've got limited time until the World Cup to work that out. But really, their <clears throat> their focus for that World Cup is going to be number one, ensuring uh, Darcy Graham's health. Uh, he's had an injury now, but he is red hot at the moment, along with Duan Fanamuva. 
and really key to the Scottish uh, prospects. Um, some BMT to get those narrow losses over the line and uh, yeah, to prep themselves for some, some giant slaying come the World Cup time. I don't think anyone's putting them in pound seats for, for semi-final or final places, but they definitely have the, uh, the potential to knock over a couple of big sculpts and, and some big upsets at the World Cup. And I think they'll be targeting a few specific games. So they'll be prepping for that over the next coming months. And uh, they have the the talent the talent to to do so. So yeah, I think they had a by Scottish standards a pretty good year. Yeah, I mean I think with these, I mean do you want to call Scotland a, sec- a second tier team? But I mean the second bracket of top teams. Um, you know you do obviously hold them to a different standard. And I think they they did show some good performances. I think splitting two all across Argentina across the year. Was good and obviously their their almost win against New Zealand was really good, um, but yeah, it's, it's there's still enough. They're not consistently firing at that highest level yet for them to worry the big boys. I don't think. Yeah, I I find it strange that yeah, like Andrew said, the ten and fifteen isn't nailed down. Um, having Finn Russell and Stuart Hogg, but not playing in Scotland, I think. That has some impact on their sort of, I don't know if it's the cohesion or the the mentality or something in the camp where obviously international windows, they didn't start that first match, but also them bringing them into the team and having that consistency. I think on talent, those two would be the best and those two should be, you know, the starting 10 and 15, but the other factors make it a bit difficult. Um, yeah. No, I, I mean, I think you saw the lift in Scotland's performance when, when when Russell was playing. He is, when he's on form, one of the best tens around. Um, but the question is, just how often does he aspire on that level? Um, and obviously, you know, what what discomfort does he bring to the coaching setup? Uh, obviously, there's a bit of a tricky um, relationship there with Greg uh, Townsend. But yeah, speaking of a team that they they tied tied to all with is Argentina. We had a very, uh, also similarly up and down year, new coach in the helm with Michael Checker. Um, you know, we were kind of expecting that he would get good things out of them, given his coaching style, you know, could tap into that Latin passion. And I think we saw that. Um, I'm giving them a C- minus for the year. Um, you know, they had some really good results, beating New Zealand in New Zealand, beating England for the first time at Wickham in 2008. Um, you know, they've got a really strong first team. Yeah, I think they, they're definitely a threat to anyone on a once-off game at the World Cup. The downside, however, is that beyond that starting 15, there's a significant drop-off in quality of player and you know, the inconsistency in results. Going from beating New Zealand to getting smashed by 50, beating England to getting pumped by both Wales and Scotland. Uh, you know, those are kind of results that you can't really uh, maintain if you're going to have a serious stab at the World Cup. And, you know, how much of that is, we, you know, we know the Argentinians celebrate their wins and is it just genuinely that they were not just metaphorically hungover, they were literally hungover. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily hold that against them um, for, for these types of matches, but, but you know, come the World Cup, that, that's kind of behaviors, ooh, that kind of inconsistency is really going to hurt them. So I think that's going to be their, their key focus for the World Cup is they know they are good enough to beat the best teams now. They have the players to do it. It's can they do that consistently. Yeah, Argentina has managed over the last 
two or three seasons to establish a massive psychological switch from being, you know, uh, we'd love to challenge the likes of New Zealand and South Africa and Australia um, and England and but to the point that they now know that they can beat them. And that's a massive mental psychological advantage. Uh, and, and they've managed to achieve that now. So they, they could go they could go a long way into the World Cup. Um, again, I don't think we're giving them a chance of winning it, but they, they're definitely a difficult team to overturn. What are the odds of another France-Argentina World Cup final? Tiny. Wait, <laughs> another one? Was, have we had one? No, oh, the, the Soccer World Cup. Oh, I see. I'm, I'm a bit slow. Sorry. That was a ridiculous uh, direction to take us in talking about football. Fair enough. I, I mean, I, I just want to say that win against England was so massive just because they are in the same group, so it will give them so much confidence going into that World Cup game. And if they can come top of their group, that sets them up very well for a semi-final. All right, so the, I think the next team is Japan, um, which I... I'm covering. It's a bit of a tough one, to be honest, because Japan just didn't play as much as they really should have this year. So it might be a bit harsh, but I'm giving them a D. So they have a zero out of five record this Even season. Japan, D. What? <laughs> uh, I'm just going to move on. Uh, a zero out of five win record. They played pretty tough teams, to be fair. They played France three times, I think um, England and New Zealand. Yep. So. I, for the pluses, I, I'd say they had two, I think, very good performances. One against France, which was in Japan, which they lost by five points. And a very encouraging performance against the All Blacks, you know, despite not the strongest All Blacks team playing, and um, come back towards the end of the game. They still put up a very good fight in that game. Um, but they, the worst performance was definitely against England. I mean, we've already discussed how bad of an England year it's been. So to get smashed, and that game was also really frustrating. They just, they were trying like to play like Japan do try, but everything just didn't work. They just dropped everything. They, yeah, they just didn't seem in sync with each other, and that comes from just not enough game time. So that's the big negative for me. They didn't play enough games. You can't play five games in a year and expect to be on the same level as the other. Um, top tier teams. Um, even if you're, you know, you're not able to play against the best teams, I think just being able to have more game time is important. So that is also just the key focus before the World Cup: just more game time, more fixtures, more cohesion, more, you know, time together. I don't know. Just make something happen. Put like play against, uh, you know, your neighbors there in um, East Asia if you have to. But ultimately, they. They they still have a good team. Like there hasn't been a drop in I think quality very much since 2019, but this year has just been a weird one. I think they came out of COVID a bit late too, and they didn't yeah obviously didn't have a rugby championship or Six Nations to um, play in like some of the other teams. So disappointing year, and it's going to be a very very big you know nine months before the World Cup for Japan because there's so much to do. Do Do you think they they missing not being in the Pacific Nations Cup? I think so. I mean, like I say, I think any, even if they would have won that easily, or maybe not because, you know, there are some, some very good teams in there, but just having more competitive games, but not even that, just more games would have helped. You know. So I definitely think playing against teams like, you know, Fiji and Samoa, who were 
pretty good this year would have helped. And they, you know, they wouldn't be, they maybe would have been favorites, but it definitely would have been easy for them. Yeah, it definitely would have been good, good training for anything else. Um, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Uh, the one team that we did kind of skip out that's all ranked slightly higher than Japan is Italy, who, yeah, I mean, had a had a pretty good year by their standards. Um, and I think they, I mean, how many games did they end up winning? Probably two or three as well. Um, but, you know, first ever wins over Wales and Australia. You know, that's similarly to Argentina really shows a good growth in their team. I think Italy for the first time, I mean, Argentina obviously had have had good results in the past. They've produced, I mean, countless world-class players. The same cannot be said about Italy. But I think we're finally seeing a bit of a transition and growth in Italy that, that's, which has at least been promising and been talking about their, their kind of systems, um, the under-20s guys coming through. And you're seeing a new younger generation of Italian players coming through that, that do seem to be a bit better. I mean, they, you know, they beat... Um, Australia without even their top player, Paolo Gobisi. So, you know, we'll, we'll break through players of the year. Uh, Andrew Kutso on a bit, like, running at the back there. Um, so, I think they, again, I mean, I don't think they're going to make it out their pool. But I think they'll be quietly quite happy with, with where their year has gone. Uh, you know, they, I think the big uh, marks against them is probably, you know, yet another really poor uh, Six Nations campaign coming last, apart from the, the Wales loss, and obviously getting pumped by the Springboks. I mean, there was, you know, they were comfortably outplayed in that game, um, which I think, you know, just shows the, the the gap between your stronger second team tier teams and, and the top teams. Uh, but, you know, I think they'll, I think they'll be coming out of this fairly happy, all things considered. Yeah. Italy have been good and, and their club teams have also been on the rise as well. Um, yeah. Zebra and Benetton in, URC have been challenging some top teams and, and playing some really good rugby. And I think the, the recent ruling, if I can bring in some recent news, I know this isn't a regular episode, that they're they're limiting the non-Italy qualified players to seven per team sheet going forward with those two club teams is going to to be in their favour, I think, in the, in the long run, developing those Italian players um, across those two club teams, which are major, major feeders for the international team. Um, but but they've, I think more more than anything, they've been playing some really exciting rugby. You know, not just not just getting a couple of important wins and stuff, but really like being creative and expressing themselves, which is the Italian way. Uh, and that'll come with up and down results along the way. But as long as there's growth and a positive trajectory, um, I think Italy can can be pretty happy with where they're headed. No, I think so. Um, but yeah, I think that that brings us nicely to wrap up with the last team, um, you know, who also beat Wales this year, which is Georgia. Yeah, so it's difficult, as Phil said, with these teams that don't play a lot of international rugby to to give them ratings. Um, I've given Georgia a B, which I think is the second highest rating or third highest rating of all the nations we've covered. Um, and that's because they've got a 4-1 record. Um, they've they've only lost one game this year, and that was a one-point loss to Samoa. But on the on the negative side, you know they've played Portugal, Uruguay, uh, Wales, Italy, and someone else. If you give me a second, I'll find out who it is. Um, and, and Samoa, of course. Sorry. So. You know, for them to get a win over Wales, great. Um, Wales are not in a great place, but they definitely took advantage. And they got a, a win over Italy, who we just talked about and who we sort of have high hopes for. 
so for playing this little international rugby is always going to hurt a team. Um, so for for the World Cup, I mean, Georgia are never going to qualify for, for knockout rounds, but they have the potential to run some teams close and to do some giant slaying if they put a game together with, with their whole team for 80 minutes. So I think they'll be working on some trick plays and, and geeing up the boys for some some specific fixtures that they'll target and um, they'll be happy with a win or a few close results and, and a good showing at the World Cup. I don't think we can expect too much more, but, you know, as uh, Matt, one of the OGs of this podcast, uh, likes to say, we always like to watch a Jordan Georgian scrum. So we'll be looking forward to a few of those at the World Cup, that's for sure. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think Georgia, you know, they'll be pushing, as they have been for the last while, is pushing for respect. Uh, they want to be competitive against the top teams, try to get a good result you know, where they can. And I think if they can come out of the World Cup with a third in the pool, you know, qualification, qualification for the next World Cup, I think they'll be quite happy with that. Absolutely, yeah. Cool. Well, I think that's, you know, we, we've we've had to push quite quickly to get through everything, but I think we've made a good time. Um, yeah, anything you guys want to add before the end? Otherwise, we can wrap up there. Um, yeah, it's 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 just been a good year for rugby. Like teams have been up and down the world rankings. Everyone's competitive with everyone. It seems it's really exciting time to be a rugby fan. We had the Women's World Cup, which is a great success, you know, the best watched women's rugby event ever of all time. Um, yeah, and and you know it's been been an honor to share the podcast with you two gents this year. It's been a a revolutionary year for the Elite Rugby Bantic podcast, having some new faces and, and voices. So thanks to the listeners who stuck with us and uh, endured and Phil and my <laughs> uh, poor opinions for the last uh, few months. And we look forward to a lekker 2023. Yeah, I want to just share that sentiment. I think anyone who's hung around, we thank you very much. Um, and I've enjoyed it. Um, Looking forward to next year. Enjoyed this last year, but particularly the World Cup. Uh, I think particularly New Zealand not being at their same level has just leveled the playing field so much and making things so exciting. So that means so many teams have a pretty good chance. Um, and yeah, looking forward to covering it with you guys and see what happens in the future. Cool. Yeah, I think that, that kind of sums everything up that we want to say. So yeah, we'll leave it there. Thanks so much for listening, guys, and we'll chat to you all next year.